Hello, welcome to Maine Education Matters. My name is Matt Drewett Card. Thank you very much for joining us and listening today. We appreciate you taking the time to subscribe. If you know someone who hasn't listened to this, uh, well, that's probably most of your people who you know. Uh, go ahead and uh, rate, review, give us a, whatever it is on that iTunes thing. Um, see how up to date I am? I, I don't know what this stuff is. I'm just, I'm really hip and with it, aren't I? Uh, today, this uh, another one of our special episodes where we are continuing a conversation about racism, bias, inclusiv inclusivity, equity, diversity in our schools, in our classrooms, in our curriculum, in our educational system as a whole. We've looked at it so far at a general curriculum perspective with the uh, executive director of the uh, Maine Curriculum Leaders Association. We've talked about it at the point from a school board member perspective. Today, I am honored to be talking with um, a couple members of the Maine Department of Education on this issue. And I'd first like to introduce you to Deca Delac, the Family Engagement and Cultural Responsiveness Specialist. Deca, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Matt. Um, I, um, as Matt said, my name is Deca Delac. I am the Family Engagement and Cultural Responsiveness for the Department of Education. I got hired in December, so I'm almost uh, nine months, if my math's correct. Uh, and this is a, a brand new position that the commissioner uh, created, one of uh, new positions created by the commissioner. We also have a brand new uh, social emotional uh, learning uh, specialist and mental health liaison specialist. So uh, I was grateful when I get hired for this position. A little bit about me. I am originally from Somalia, East Africa. I lived in the United States almost 30 years. Uh, I lived first in Atlanta, Georgia and uh, moved to Maine back in 2005. I have three kids uh, who went all in Maine uh, public schools. Uh, my oldest is 27. My second son is 21, who is in USM for education, uh, becoming a teacher. And also my, my uh, daughter is uh, 19 years old and she is a political science man, uh, uh, major at Emmanuel College in Boston. Nice. Well, we'll have to catch up sometime about Atlanta. I lived there for about a year and a half or so of the North Druid Hills area. So I have to start, start uh, get some talking about some little haunts down there in that area. Uh, little hot Atlanta. And also joining us today, um, well, I don't think he was from Atlanta, but he, he joined from another little, little bit further north. Uh, Joe Schmidt, the acting coordinator of secondary education and the social studies specialist for the Maine Department of Education. Joe, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Matt, for having me. Uh, honored to be here, excited. Uh, I am one of the avid followers of um, not only the podcast series, but your Twitter chats as well, or your tweets you put out there. Thank you for all the hard work that uh, both you and uh, Matt Shade do uh, for supporting educators in the States. Um, as you've mentioned, some of my roles in the department, I moved to Maine uh, about just over three and a half years ago as a social studies specialist for the department. Uh, during that time, we did do a revision of the main learning results and you know some of the work that uh, was part of that is something that I think is still relevant in this discussion today and making sure we're seeing multiple perspectives, um, mm -hmm. making sure that uh, the diversity of not only you know the past of Maine in our country is examined but also you know the contemporary issues and where they sit. Um, currently in my additional role or my extra role of 
acting coordinator of secondary education. Um, I oversee the eight content areas at that secondary level piece. Um, some of it's K-12, some of it's 6-12, uh, but these are also discussions we're having internally across the content areas and determining how to support um, one another, how to support the content, how to support the field. Um, because I, I definitely know that the social studies uh, person in me and in the field, we definitely look at this as you know being an issue that uh, is very relevant and continues to become more and more relevant and more and more topical. People are asking more questions, uh, which is just an opportunity for us to get more resources out there and more supports. Um, this is definitely something that's very important to me in my previous uh, positions. It's something I did a lot of work with uh, and actually served on the Teaching Tolerance Advisory Board um, for four years um, and uh, played a role in some of the uh, work that they did, uh, some of the magazine work um, and some of um, the resources that they created as well. So this is something I'm very passionate about. Um, and so I'm just excited to be here with you, Matt, to talk. Great. And I hope also both of you are members of the DEI committee, the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee, correct? Yes. Yeah, for the, for the main Department of Education. Yeah, we've um, started to do some internal work uh, around that. And so we have um, people who are willing to step up into that role and then look at what does that mean internally for our own capacity? What does that mean for the department as a whole? Um, where are we in, our, in, in that type of work? And then how do we support the field and being very cognizant of um, the importance of that work? And, and to add to what George just said, that is um, also we cannot push diversity, equity, and inclusion to the districts and the schools without us as a DOE looking things internally and getting to those equity, you know, what does it look like uh, in the equity that we have at the DOE level? Uh, we uh, all know exactly what it means to be a diverse, equity, and included uh, uh, persons of the people who work in our departments. So we have to look things into ourselves first before we push things to the district and the schools and say, you should be doing this, or you should be doing that before sure. we really identify how we are knowledgeable about the DEI work. Sure, so this actually is a, has been a common thread about this is the third podcast we've done on this and this topic. And each time, whether it's at a policy, board policy level, curriculum level, et cetera, it's, it, the start seems to be, you have to look inside yourself first. So that, my, my first question for all of this, this conversation is how do we start? What do we ask? What should we be looking for? And where should we be looking for it? It sounds to me like what you're saying, like from the, from the Department of Education's perspective, you're also trying to model that for other places in terms of one of the first places to look is take a hard look in the mirror at your own privilege, your own bias, your own uh, beliefs in equity and inclusion. Uh, oh my goodness, yes, absolutely. We have to take a look at that as, um, and I'm gonna say not in a bad way, but the white people really do, do have a really big uh, responsibility to work with other white folks to build anti-racist identities, right? We cannot say, uh, oh, I know this, therefore I don't have to tell my friend or my neighbors or my uh, teacher friend how important it is to know your identity and also to name your privilege, right? And if we do not do that, it's gonna be really very difficult for people of color like myself 
to do this work over and over and over while our own friends and neighbors of white folks are not doing the work themselves. And that, that puts a lot of burden on, on uh, people of color and BIPOC communities. And to, to be honest, when we are doing trainings, also this is another thing, when we are doing trainings about equity, inclusion and diversity, it is an ongoing work. It's not, oh yes, it's a check. Let's just check that box and get with it. It's an ongoing, it's revolving. And if you look at um, uh, in, in Portland, we have almost 66 languages spoken in our schools, right? And mm -hmm. all of these uh, families and children who go to in our schools are speaking different languages, coming in different countries, have different cultures, have different religions. So if we say, okay, yes, this large community of members, we just did that training and we checked that box. No, it's gonna be ongoing work and we have to take that responsibility as a, as a broader community, as social workers, as you know, um, teachers, anybody, uh, uh, school counselors, we have to take that responsibility and make sure that we are really providing the services that we uh, must serve all students equally. We do have students who are whose socioeconomics is low up in, uh, in, in North Maine. We have kids of, who are white, mm -hmm. who do not have the means of knowing where their food is coming from, right? Mm -hmm. We should not say, okay, these are poor people, therefore we should not even talk about them. We have LGBTQ community uh, uh, students who are occupying in our schools. And if they don't see uh, uh, um, the rainbow flag, you know, put in their schools, they may not feel they are welcome in that, right? We have Muslim students who are, you know, being bullied because of their religion. So as, as teachers, as uh, school principals, as superintendents, we do have a responsibility to make sure all of those children are coming to our schools and feel safe. And thinking about Matt, you kind of asked the question, like, so where does it start? You talked about the, that internal piece in there. Um, leadership and coordinators at the department were doing a book study, uh, guiding teams to excellence with equity. Um, and one of the things that we talked about in facilitating this process that's highlighted in the book is that inside out movement of that work. It's an awareness that takes place internally and then you hit the point of understanding and seeing it around you that leads you then to action, understanding your role in it, understanding the bigger role and everything like that. And then seeing where can you move this type of, of work um, forward. Mm. And when you're looking at, you know, curriculum and Defa was talking about like that safe space to be, you know, I think not only on our end of having to have that internal understanding right to say oh, okay I see this I see where this could be an issue I want to do something about it I think students have that same internal external processing as well right mm -hmm. you know Decca said seeing the things that make them safe and I would talk about like in curriculum you know what should we be looking for we should be looking for diverse texts students mm -hmm. um, and experiences whether it's primary sources in social studies or different books in reading you know, I like, to, I like to say, if students can't see themselves in, in these certain circumstances, certain situations, then it becomes, you know, exponentially more difficult for them to get there, right? But they internalize that first. They see themselves, you know, being successful or being safe or being happy. Um, because I know that there's been a lot of districts, I shouldn't say a lot of districts, these are outside of Maine, but I'm aware of big urban districts who put in time and effort and work to make sure that their curriculum was very diverse. 
And then um, outside groups came in to do a finer uh, reflection on it. And they would say, yes, we see uh, African-Americans being portrayed at every level. And 80% of the time, it's a negative piece. It's through the lens of being enslaved. It's hmm. the uh, lens of X, sure. Y, Z, right? So just having those components in the curriculum doesn't necessarily, like I said, right, check that box, right? What are they doing with that? And there was something like 80% of um, were shown in negative light. And then it was something like 70% weren't at the appropriate reading level for students of that age. So things were being put in that was reinforcing some issues and students couldn't really access a lot of it anyway. So having those pieces in the curriculum didn't necessarily mean you were there, right? Because the question was, what should we be looking for? Right. We should be looking for opportunities for students to see themselves uh, you know, successfully, see the, the role um, that they played, their culture have played, the people that they see themselves as played a role in our country. Um, and if I'm thinking about in that, his, in that social studies lens, that historical lens, and then again, in that contemporary piece, when we look around at the world around us, all of us want to be able to see ourselves as active, thriving, engaged members of that culture or of that community, whether it's that's, you know, the, your city community all the way up to like the nation and the global community. And so we need to make sure that's what students are seeing and that they have the ability to say, I see that and here's, here's my experience, right? The ability to safely say, right? Because there is no single story that would summarize all this stuff. And so sure. we would want to use these launching points for students to then be able to say, yes, and here's my story. Here's my role in it. Here's what my family has been in and, um, and, uh, and had a part in all of this as well. If I may add, please, um, to another lens to that is uh, something that I hear from our educators in, in North Maine and which is a, a fair argument. I do not have any diverse students in my classrooms. How can I you know, talk about diversity and inclusion and all of those things? So, so my pushback to them was, you are teaching the future leaders of this world, of this state, of this country. Mm -hmm. One of these kids that you're teaching might become the ambassador to the United Nations one day, or the ambassador to Israel or other countries. Don't they really need to learn what's happening in the in the world? Uh, for example, myself coming from a third world country, I learned so many countries and what's happening in those countries in middle school. So my son, my 21 year old, when he uh, and, and my kids actually, we teach them world history, world geography, things that they're not getting from the public schools, right? And when he was sixth grade, um, I was, you know, quizzing him about uh, capitals of countries. So he had a good friend of his with him at the time. And I said, what's the capital of China? And before my son responded, his friend said, Japan. Oh, <laughs> like, no. Wait a minute, kid. What are you talking about? And he was really, really serious. He was not, you know, yeah. he's like, isn't it, isn't that? So we really need to teach these kids what's happening in the world. And we did, uh, um, we, the OS, or triple S is Office of Student and uh, Safety and Support in my team. Um, 
a school district. I'm not gonna name what, that, what school is that. And we each sit on our classrooms and then you know debrief what we've seen. So in my classroom that I sit on, it was a fifth grade, fourth grade class, very nice. The teacher was very attentive, no diverse, all students were white and they were all respectful. They were listening to the teacher. The teacher was on top of everything. But when I looked around the room, there was no people of color posters, no any books of uh, um, people of color authors, none of that. So my other colleague went to a classroom that had uh, um, three black kids and those children were putting their hands up to answer questions, but they were not being picked on by the teacher. The teacher was not you know, paying attention on them. And that really um, it stays with that student for a long term because of the fact yeah. that your teacher is not picking on you. That means you're not good enough. You're not, you know, telling any good answers. And I, I can tell a good story about that. My, my daughter, who uh, who is a second year at political science in Emmanuel, um, she swears everything that she learned. She learned from her fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Baker. She was the only black kid in that classroom. Maybe a couple of more. But Mrs. Baker will push her, will challenge her, will ask her questions, and she will take those criticism in a way that is positive. And that encouraged her to do even more. So at that fifth grade level, she ran for school senate. She represented her uh, school um, board uh, in, in, in during high school two years in a row. Uh, she was part of the Seats of Peace, part of um, you know, King Fellows all the way. So we need to encourage our children, no matter what the color of their skin is, to pick on them and say yes. And yeah. then, you know, pick their brains and making sure that they are really coming out of uh, uh, their shell because all children are the same. And I, I can also talk about when is those kids hit in uh, high schools, most of the uh, school counselors and the school social workers and the school teachers do not give them space to say, why don't you try the honor classes? Why don't you do AP classes? And as, as yeah. a community leader myself, I'm a part of the Somali Community Center of Maine. This is what we're hearing from our students of color, immigrant backgrounds. They're saying that our teachers did not give us the, the opportunity to do this. So we encourage them to do it. You're not gonna lose anything if you cannot handle that class. But what do you know, when, when we talk about representation matters and during high school, we have uh, um, a Somali immigrant, uh, Dr. Ahmed, who is the principal, acting principal, well, co-principal now. Um, he, when he came on board, he really encouraged these kids to try it. And that number was very low at the time for students of color uh, going to honor classes and AP classes. But when he came on board, that number really get higher and higher. And my daughter was one of the kids who really advantage, take advantage of that. Great. So we, we have this responsibility as educators, as parents, as yeah. community members to really uplift all our children, no matter what their background is. That, that gets to, in my opinion, one of the most insidious things about um, about bias and whatnot in our in our educational system is that, and and maybe insidious is the wrong word, but every teacher, every educator, I believe in my heart, they go into this room believing that they want to help everybody, all kids, no matter what. There's there 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 isn't a level of uh, maleficence in in their in their mindset. However. There are kids who we just who, who just come into the room and we have low expectancy of. 
We will treat them differently for one reason or another. It could be the color of their skin. It could be the clothes that they're wearing. It could be the smell coming off of them because they haven't been able to shower because they don't have the ability to have fresh water at home. It could be, I know this family from, I live next to them, so I know what they're like and they're like, so I'm going to reduce my expectancy for them. And I think part, one of the things that I've been pushing back on a lot of districts and I've had a lot of these questions asked a lot of, especially in areas like central Northern Maine, which might say questions like you brought up, like, well, we don't have, we're, all, we're like 99.9% white. We don't have that issue here. We don't have bias. I, I, I would say to them, look at your top 10 list and your valedictorian and salutatorian for the last five to 10 years. How many of them were either English learner, had an IEP or were free reduced lunch? What percentage of your top 10 were in, had, had some of those particular markers, identifiers, quote unquote? And if, if the answer is pretty low, but your free reduced lunch percentage is 60% or higher, what is that saying about your real inclusivity in your school and how you're dealing with the word accommodation and how are we dealing with those level of bias? I've heard educators say things like, well, we know these kids as special education, they had a lot of accommodations. So they're up there getting the same diploma, but we know their diploma isn't the same. I've heard educators say that and not think that it's, they're, they're trying to say anything mean or anything horrible or anything bad. But I'm like, well, wait a minute. They had the same high expectations as every kid. They just had to get it differently. They might've had anxiety or ADD, or they might have had other things that were just getting in their way that we helped to accommodate to get them to the same access. That's one of the things that I see as, as a major issue in Maine, that we, not just the, 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 the racial diversity, but also this level of other kind of bias that's deep hidden within. And your, your, your questions about continued ongoing questions, asking questions, I think one of the things that might stop us is, we, is we, we're afraid to ask questions that we don't want to know what the answer is. Or we're afraid of what the answer might be. I think one thing that we run into a lot, Matt, I think, I think where you're going with this is, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I've seen instances where, you know, data was entered, reports were filled out in terms of diversity. And they're saying, well, you know, we, don't, we really have this, it's 3% this or it's that. And diversity goes so much beyond like mm. skin color or ethnicity, right? There Absolutely. are all the things you were just talking about. And so how do we reflect on those pieces? But I think what you were just saying about like asking those questions is I think it, we sometimes then have to think about you know, like what is our role in that, right? Where, where is right. my privilege in that? And do I have to understand, you know, because I think what you started the whole thing off, right? Like, I don't think that there's, uh, I think people are well-intentioned. They're not, they're not setting out to cause harm per se. Absolutely. And then it becomes harder to then say, myself as a well-intentioned fill in whatever the blank is might actually be perpetuating might actually be causing might actually be playing a role in this and then that becomes you know a lot harder now because I'm not only having to talk about mm. wanting to support my students but then it goes right back to how we started you know the podcast with right it's that internal piece I have to reflect internally and understand that the role uh, that I've been taking, right? And externally, you know, can say that it's a lot of work to change the world around us, but a lot of times it's also easier, right? Because when, we, when we're when we done with whatever we're doing, we can come back to ourselves. 
if, if we're internally having to work on some things, right, we are always with us. <laughs> and so until you can really come to terms with that, you know, you can't escape that. And so I think that I think that's very natural for people, you know, to have that. And then you still have to be willing to address it and think about those questions and think about those roles. Because I, I think you're 100% right. Those are hard questions for people to be asking themselves. Yeah, so um, full convention here. In my culture and where I'm from, we see the teacher as your second parent, period. You cannot talk back, you cannot say anything. They always write mm -hmm. because they are the people who are teaching you the best way they can, right? And many of the immigrant community members that we have in Maine believe in that Therefore, they don't engage in their children's schools and you know curriculums and things like that mm. because they said, my kid is in the hands of an educator. There is nothing that can go wrong, right? So what they don't know is the racism part because already, if you look at, uh, and I'm gonna speak in the immigrant uh, experience, they already have been experienced in, in, in trauma, um, uh, civil wars, genocide, they coming in here on all of this baggage. And when they got here, all they want is just to rest and live in a peaceful way, right? But their children are really failing in classrooms because there is no uh, um, engagement in the family. And if you look at the research, when a family is engaged in a student's uh, uh, education, that a student is really uh, becomes very successful in his school, in their education. So that is not there. So now we are really, um, connecting families and making sure they're reaching out to their teachers. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Portland Empowered. Uh, yes. They, they, they're really doing a great work around that. And going back to your question, Matt, I think um, what can we do as a community, right? And how are we working to create a long lasting change in our community? So that is the only thing that we need to do uh, right now in order for us to support our teachers and also support ourselves internally as a DOE. So when once we get to that uh, um, space, I think everybody can then move forward and making sure that when we are talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, we are talking about kids with the reduced lunch, right? We're talking about kids with their socioeconomics is low. We're talking about kids with special education. We're talking about kids with LGBTQ communities. So that is the number one thing that we really need to understand because when a teacher says, well, I'm in up north and I'm 99.9% white, how can I talk about this? Yes, because you might have half of your classroom being poor children, right? Our kids are in mm -hmm. any special uh, uh, needs. So we have to that, uh, understand that mindset and, and look things into that lens. And I would say to go along with that, you know, we've heard there's been a couple of mentions of the, you know, 99.9% white or the this. Um, Dr. Linda Trope at UMass Amherst, she does her research in examining um, races and racial anxiety and her, her research tells us that the, the fewer interactions we have with people who are different than us, the longer that goes, the more we struggle with that than as adults, that we need to have meaningful relationships with those who are different than us in order to be able to navigate those relationships later on. And so when, you know, it's the idea uh, and in working with her, I said, well, we have places, you know, schools who are, you know, 99.9% .9 white. 
And, you know, she said, that's exactly what this research is intended to kind of support, right? It's not the, the racially diverse communities where these interactions are happening every day. It's to help that understanding that the, the interactions are so important that you sometimes have to make sure you're being thoughtful and explicit about making those type of connections. Because if the default is, well, you know, we're just going to do this because there's nobody else around, then you're, you're setting those kids up for failure down the road, right? And it's not a specific piece, right? It's not to get them to be, you know, best friends with this or with that or whatever. It's talking about the emotional well-being of students who grow up to become adults who interact with people who are different from them. And we, we have to be giving them the, the time and the space and the place to work on that, you know, when they're younger, to have those positive relationships as they're getting older. Let's let's take a look at this from um, that this this perspective of of how do then we if we're if if we're going to talk about these rural communities or these communities where let's just focus on those we're just talking about where the the, the the need is incredibly high to make sure that we are being as both inclusive as as culturally diverse as possible um, or even even more so than just possible. Um, what are some steps that we might be able to take to, I don't know, dare I say, convince people of the importance of this? Because that's going to be, that's a, that's a big hill to climb, is to say, how do we then make sure that this becomes um, to the forefront, given how there's school districts and teachers and educators are pulled in a million different directions all at once. How might we say to them, no, 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 hang on. This has to come to the front right now, no matter where you are. I was listening to um, or watching of uh, YouTube uh, with um, author um, Ibram Kindi. Mm. Uh, the question that was asked him was how exactly would you ask? But it was more so, should we um, talk to people in an emotional level? and change their perspectives of what they think, what diversity, equity, and inclusion is? Or should we really face or attack it in the, uh, attack is a, is a bad word, but uh, face no, it in the policy way? And his answer was, we have to do both of them at the same time, because we have systems that are really rooted uh, deeply that is not working for certain groups of people and works for other uh, groups of people. So in that case, we have to change those policies and mm -hmm. take a look at them and say, is this policy is good for greater good for everybody, right? And at the same time, we have to really have a, those um, uncomfortable conversations with people and say, do you know what di what, what's your privilege? if you will, do you know how much your privilege works for you and it does not work for others? Uh, we can say the adults to uh, students and as young as um, kindergarten, right? And we have to really forefront, look into both sides of the aisle and making sure that we are looking things into the policy level as well as the human level. How can we do the human level? I think every school, um, should have somebody who is looking into that diversity, equity, and inclusion. And when we say equity, we're talking about everybody, right? Mm. Um, and uh, if they cannot afford that, I would say 
hire a consultants that can really help you out on that and making sure that that work is ongoing. And as we all know, Maine is uh, local control. So what certain uh, school boards are doing and the policies they have is different than another. Uh, so we need to really take a look at those in, a, in, a, in an empathy way, making sure that we talk to people as the human is face to face and tell them people, we see you, I see you, I, I hear you, so that they do not put their walls up. We want those walls down and making sure that we are here to serve children at all ages and all colors and all backgrounds. So I think uh, I cannot stress enough how important teachers are. And in my, as I said, in my country, they are your second uh, parent. And we should really let our teachers know that every day. They have so much on their plate. Me and Joe were in a, in a, in a meeting earlier talking about you know, modules, MOOS modules that we're working on at the DOE um, to help um, teachers about equity and inclusion to add to their modules, right? And some of these teachers are going through COVID for their family members. They are humans just like us. They have their own things all over their shoulders. And on top of that, we are telling them, oh, you're not teaching your classrooms for equity and inclusion. Therefore, you have to add this. We can say that by changing our language in a way that is with empathy and explaining the need of it, the responsibility of it, the importance of it. And, and we are all humans. We will understand what that means. So I think it is important for us as a community to come together and work together from the Department of Education to the districts, to the school boards, to everybody. And I agree all of what Decca said, right? I think she really hits on there's the policy piece, there's the emotional piece, there's the importance piece. There's all of the components of it. And when talking with teachers and working with teachers, this type of stuff, I think the important thing to remember is all of that is true. And not any single one of us is going to change the, you know, the arc of the universe, right? Like that, that's yourself, not something though. that people are, you know, you should be trying to shoulder. When we see the news or you see certain circumstances, right? We want to make the world a better place. But all that we can control is, is that thing around us. So I always try to remind teachers, your next unit may not be perfect, right? It might not be the, the end all be all of everything. But if, if, it, if it's better than how it used to be, if you've moved some direction forward, if you've become more aware, if you've yep. introduced new perspectives, if you've introduced the students having new ways to speak their voice, right? That's what it starts, right? It's, the, it's that little pebble being thrown into the ocean, right? That makes that the thing. No one of us can do this. And I think a lot of times that gets in, you know, back to Matt, the original question, that that can get in the way. When you look at everything that's there and say, I can't do this, which is right. But the problem is, is if we all look at the whole big picture and say, I can't do this, we can't. But if we all say in my classroom tomorrow, I'm going to make sure this is covered. This is a little piece. Cause yes, in the end, your one day, your one unit won't change the world. And it's the exact thing that will start 
the change to that world. And to build up the community of people who are willing to, you know, throw those little stones in as well. And then someday you're going to look yeah. and you will have made the difference. And I, I always want to tell, tell teachers, you know, to kind of step back from the little bit. All of this is not on your shoulders to fix. All we can do is do our part. And if we all do, I think that will come around. So don't let it be intimidating because of how important it is. Because of how important it is becomes your right. reason to just do what you can. It, it, it gets to a, a, a common thread that I've seen with a, with a lot of us in education. Some of us have this kind of type A-ish personality where we want everything to be perfect the exact first time that we do it. And sometimes we get um, so afraid that it's not going to be that we don't push ourselves beyond those boundaries. And it could also be that we've created this curriculum, this unit, et cetera, and I'm familiar with it and it's comfortable with it. And so here it is. I've done it before. I'm going to keep doing it this way and fine. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily a, a bad thing, but I also go back to some of the things that our founding, the U.S. founding fathers put in the constitution to, to form a more perfect union. That was a growth mindset approach back there. It was, this, it was this idea that we're not going to have a perfect country. It's never going to get there. You're never going to have a perfect unit or a perfect curriculum. It's never going to be done. That's not the goal. The goal is to work toward it, knowing that that expert is never going to be there, but we keep making the incremental steps. So it's that level, like we said before, of that those hard reflections looking inward, asking difficult questions, not being afraid of that answer. Um, and then once we see it, once, we've, once we start experiencing and seeing these things, it's not, I don't see it as a level of being like, of trying to be, bring shame or bring any kind of blame to this. It's like, no, this is what it is. We now recognize that. Are we comfortable with leaving it this way? Are we okay with that? Because if we are okay with that, here's what this means. It means that we are okay with leaving out entire populations of ideas and people and identity. Or do we want to, if we really believe in this more inclusivity, how are we going to take a small step incrementally here to bring it in? And like you said, Joe, it's not going to be perfect. It's going to fail. It's going to be messy. But that's where we learn. And we all, and all the educators know that. But putting that lens back onto ourselves is a really challenging thing to do. So is there something that our educators or either our teachers or our leaders who are listening to this right now, a couple of things that they could, like actionable steps right away that they could put into play. Well, you just said it, uh, Matt. Uh, have okay, so. <laughs> you perfectly put that together, uh, synopsis just now. I, I think it, it comes down to having that courageous conversation, right? If we do not have that conversation, we do not know. And many of us, like that because I don't know what that means I don't know and I'm gonna stay in this space of not knowing but how beautiful it is if you know it and understand it and do something about it and teach others about that right so I think that is the first and foremost thing that we need to do have that conversation and um, if you don't know how to uh, start that start with somebody who you, there is always somebody that you know who knows more than you do, right? Mm -hmm. And as a humanist, we are learning. We are lifelong students. You know, no matter how old we are, we are learning something. I'm learning something from my uh, 
kids language they speak that I don't know what it is, but I want to learn that. And I know that. So when I'm having my youth uh, groups, I can relate what they mm -hmm. say. And, you know, when I'm talking about prevention and not smoking and not doing drugs, things like that, I want to relate so that they say, oh my God, Auntie Decker is really get it, what we're saying. So we're lifelong learners. So let's have that uh, uh, courageous conversation and keep on doing what you do. You are teachers, you are the future of our children. And let's make sure that if you need any support, the DOE is here. We are doing uh, all we can to support. And I think we show that as a DOE uh, during pandemic, how many uh, hours, content hours that we provided for all educators, whether it is uh, um, mental health, SEL, cultural competency, all of those things. So we are here to support. So that's what I would say. I, what I um, often reflect back on as kind of, you know, a little bit more tangible specific things is uh, Dr. Hassan Jeffries from Ohio State University, who is the co-chair of the Teaching Hard History, uh, American Slavery for Teaching Tolerance. Um, and he says, when you're going to approach this work, there's just five little things you need to do. One, you have to know yourself. And we talked about this at the beginning, right? It's kind of that internal piece. And part of that is just identifying, right? Deca talked about like, what's your privilege? You know, who are you in this bigger picture, right? And, you know, sometimes you just have to identify that, that that's the start. Um, two, you have to know your students, right? And we've given, you know, throughout the podcast examples that, that it's more than just X, right? It's all of this. And where are your students coming from? And where are they being left behind? Where are they not seeing themselves? Where are their voices mm -hmm. not being heard? But you need to know your students. Um, three, you need to know your school, right? What's going on in the school? What's the school environment? What's the school? And I think this is a little bit of the policy stuff. Um, you know, what is the, what are the policies that support this type of work? What are the clubs, the associations, the piece? How are we supporting, again, everybody in it? And I, I think we've seen a national, you know, kind of reexamination of this school to prison pipeline. And right. what, are, what are the role that schools are playing in that? And what are the policies in place? Um, fourth is know your community, right? Because this goes beyond our schools. We are, we're not doing this with students so that they become great students. We're doing this with students to become great people, to become great human beings who go out into our communities to represent their schools, our communities, you know, to be Mainers, to be known around the world, right? For that as, as a positive thing. And what does that mean? And what do we want for that, right? And then that last part is he said that when you're going to teach and dive into these topics, you need to know the history. We can't be um, repeating false narratives. We can't be building on stereotypes. Um, it's about getting deep into that, getting our hands dirty. And for me, in my, my position as that social science specialist, when I look at it, you know, it, it's not an agenda. It's not a specific piece. It's rising all of that history up to bring to the students and say, okay, Here's all of these diary entry. Here's all of these experiences, right? Mm -hmm. Which ones resonate with you? Which ones do you see connections across? Where are the differences? Why do you think the differences are there? And how much of that history can we try to bring into them um, 
for, to have them explore and understand as opposed to telling them what it is or what it should be right. or whatever. You know, that's, I don't think that that's the point. And a lot of people no, I don't I think here, when we talk about, you know, some of this stuff, it's like, oh, well now you want all, you know, all students to believe this. And I, you know, saying the socialized part, it's not about, it's not about believing a specific piece or that. I think we at least need to start so that everybody's story is told and everybody's, every student feels like, oh yeah, okay. I'm not an outlier in all of this. People right. like me have lived life. They've lived successful, happy lives. And so can I. And then what is that piece into that? So know yourself, your students, your school, your community, and then you got to know the history of that. And it sounds, again, it sounds like it's hard, but where can you bring in a new narrative that you haven't explored? Where is a way to have students you know, express something in a safe way that they haven't had a, a way to express it? Um, I remember working in a district one time and they were on board with a lot of what I was saying. And somebody said, so you expect us by the end of the summer to redo 36 weeks of curriculum? <laughs> and I said, no. I said, start with a unit, start with two weeks, start with four weeks, right? Figure out how it works. You have a place that you're not happy with, right? All educators get done with something and go, oh, next year I got to do that differently, right? Start with one of those. <laughs> we all have them. How do you tweak that? And yeah. then when you have that success, right, there's going to be some success, success, there's going to be some failure, then it just builds. I never expect anybody in, you know, 24 hours to flip everything, but there are always space for improvement. There's little steps we can take. And as long as you keep moving in that direction, you know, we'll get to that point at one point where we realize, oh, okay, the work is, you know, the work, the good work has been, I don't want to say done because there's no finish line, right? But you don't feel like it's that overwhelming piece because you just kept doing those little steps. Empathy, hard conversations, looking inward, those five no's, the self, the students, the school, the community, the history. I got to say about the history side too. I would all, when I was teaching social studies, I would always remind my students, hey, history was written by the people who had pens. People who had pens were educated. Who were the people who were educated? What was their perspective? How are we, how are we learning about what the history is? And so are there other perspectives that we need to go and dive into to find more of to not just accept what we're given? That inquiry-based mindset. Uh, sorry, I had to throw that in there because I, you, you brought out the social studies teacher in me. Um, we're going to say no to social studies conversation. Graduate <laughs> <laughs> studies is the best. I, between, the, between the three of us, because quite frankly, no one else is listening to this. Um, it's, it's, it's the center. It's the center of all, of all education. It's the centerpiece. Everything else emanates from there. Um, I will say back in, right, I was going to say in the, that it seems so long ago when it was, but back in April, um, the first <laughs> webinar that the National Council for Social Studies did, the second one that they did, was about um, uh, teaching. Uh, my uh, chair of the Government Public Relations Committee, we did one around the role of social studies in pandemics, because we said everything that people are talking about right now is social studies related where it came from, where it's going, how is it moving when we're tracking, it's all geography. Remember there was toilet paper shortages, this was all mm -hmm. economics, right? There's the stock market, there's unemployment, there's mask policies, there's elections, there's, right, there's different people, right? This, this is all just social studies. That's all, all our life has become. Yeah, love it. It all is. So um, Deca, Joe, how can, if people have more questions for you, if people wanted to get in contact with you to reach out, how might they go and do so? Um, you can e uh, send me an email. Uh, most people know um, 
now I'm I'm working for the DOE. A lot of people are reaching out to talk about different cultural competencies and cultural responsiveness work. But um, my email address is Deca D E Q A dot Dala D H A L A C at Maine dot gov. And I'm also available uh, by email, uh, J-O-E dot S-C-H-M-I-D-T at main.gov as, as well. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, I, could, I could go on like this forever um, for a long time. So uh, Deca and Joe, thank you so very much for contacting or for, for connecting with us today, for having this conversation. And uh, for those of you listening again, who, thank you again for listening. Of course, follow us on Twitter at Maine Ed Matters on Facebook, facebook.com slash Maine Education Matters. Deca and Joe, thank you, thank you, thank you again. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having us, Matt. Bye. Bye.